Let's uh, open with a word of prayer, if we could. Our Father, we come before you now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving you praise and honor and glory, which you so rightly deserve. Father, we thank you for the scriptures and the privilege we have to walk through them together. I pray that you would illumine our minds and show us the truth. Help us to understand rightly what you have written through your prophet Ezekiel. Lord, may it be an encouragement for us to live according to your ways. May uh, the accuracy of this prophecy drive us toward worship of you and right behavior. That our lives might be glorifying to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, this is week number 13 in our study of eschatology, and we've been walking through the book of Ezekiel, and we've looked at the first 28 chapters uh, in a very high view, but nevertheless trying to look at some of the details so that we get the right framework as we go into the last part of Ezekiel. Uh, the first 24 chapters of Ezekiel are all about the doom and gloom for Jerusalem. It's the prophecy that God's going to destroy them. It's an enumeration of their sins and what they were doing before God that was an abomination. And that the coming judgment would come at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. And so um, God has clearly prophesied that there will be nothing left, that there will be no people left, the land will be left desolate, the cities will be destroyed. Um, that Judah will be really uninhabitable. And so that's what's been prophesied. And we saw last week in chapter 24, the first two verses, where Ezekiel actually names the time. Um, he says, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, and that's the ninth year of the reign of Jehoiakim. So that's 588 B.C., um, where he says that the siege of Jerusalem has begun. And so this Ezekiel's been prophesying for four years, and he's been talking about what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And then there in 24, 1 and 2, he says it has begun. So I'm not exactly sure how Ezekiel knew it had begun. Maybe someone came from Jerusalem to say that the siege has begun but anyway he knows that it has and then he kind of leaves that alone and for the next three chapter four chapters 25 through 28 he talks about the judgment that's going to be on all the nations that are around uh, Israel or Judah he talks about the sons of Ammon uh, who would be to the east he talks about Moab he talks about Tyre and Sidon. Eventually, he'll talk about Egypt. Um, all these different nations that are around Israel, after Israel is destroyed, Nebuchadnezzar will go in and wipe all of them out in the same way that he's wiped, wiped out um, Jerusalem. And so God pronouncing judgment, all of this judgment, 
he says, is through the sword of Nebuchadnezzar as he does really my will, as he does what I want him to do, he will judge all these nations. So God is using an evil king, one who believes in idols. Um, if we, when we get to Daniel, if the Lord wills, we'll see just how much idol worship there was in Babylon, Babylonian times. Um, you know, that's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown into the fire is because they would not bow down and worship an idol that Nebuchadnezzar had built. Um, so there's lots of idol worship in Babylonia and God is still going to use this evil king to do his will. And we've seen a lot of that. We talked about Tyre, and, um, a great mercantile city, um, a city that was probably the banking center of the world and that it took 13 years for Nebuchadnezzar's army to completely siege that city. So 13 years of constant warfare trying to get into the city and being repelled by those who were there uh, until ultimately they totally devastated that city. So um, you can see in 28, chapter 28, in verses 25 and 26, we, we've talked about this, that there were three passages back in chapters 21 through 24 that had kind of a glimpse to the future for Israel. And here in the destruction of all the nations around Israel is another one of those passages that speaks about the future restoration of Israel. It's just a glimpse, it's a short passage, just two verses, 28, 25, and 26. Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and will manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they will live in their land which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live in it securely and they will build houses, plant vineyards and live securely when I execute judgments upon all whom all who scorn them round about them, then they will know that I am the Lord their God. And the way you know this is not speaking about the current events that is going on is because the Israelites are in the land promised to Jacob. And that is not Babylonia. That is not the land of the Chaldeans, which is where they're at. When Ezekiel prophesies this, and for the next 50 years, that's where they're at. So God isn't talking about this judgment that Nebuchadnezzar is going to do, and then Israel will live securely in their land. He's talking about something else that is yet future, because this does not happen. It never has happened in history where the Israelites move back to the, the land promised to Jacob and then live there securely. They've always been at war with people around them. They, they never have been there in a secure manner. And especially during the, the 400 years of the intertestament periods, there were still lots of wars. Remember, this is the time in that period where Antiochus comes in and again decimates Jerusalem. Um, offers many Israelites 
on the altar that is God's altar, that he sacrifices Israelites there every day while he's in occupation of Jerusalem. So there's no time in history where you could point to and say, this was true. And so you know he's talking about something yet to be described that's in the future. Okay, um, 29 begins to talk about the ju judgment of Egypt. And let me just tell you, what I plan to do today is get all the way through 33 and then go into 34. Okay, because 34 is where we're going to slow way down and walk through 34 through 48 in a pretty meticulous fashion because that's where we're talking about this period that we just talked about sometime in the future that we don't have a date on. But in 29 verse 1, he begins to prophesy about Egypt. Egypt is the last nation that Nebuchadnezzar needs to destroy. And you notice he says, in the 10th year, in the 10th month, on the 12th of the month, the Lord came to me saying, now that's pretty specific. This is 587 B.C. Okay, so this is while the siege of Jerusalem is ongoing. Ezekiel begins this prophecy about what's going to happen to Egypt. And Egypt is going to be completely defeated by Nebuchadnezzar. Matter of fact, it says they're going to run to Ethiopia. So they're going to leave their homeland because of the violence that Nebuchadnezzar is going to do to them. And you, you see, that's in the, the 10th year, in the 10th month, on the 12th of the month. Then look down at verse 17, where he says, this is when it's actually going to take place. So Ezekiel is making the prophecy in the 10th month, but then he says, now in the 27th year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the word of, of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder was rubbed bare. But he and his army had no wages for Tyre for the labor that he had performed against it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will carry off her wealth and capture her spoil and seize her plunder and it will be wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor which he performed because they acted for me, declares the Lord. On that day I will make a horn sprout of the house of Israel and I will open your mouth in their midst. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So the battle against Egypt comes 17 years later in the 27th year. And you notice God is very specific in verse 20 when he talks about all this destruction that they've wrought, and that includes the overthrow of Tyre, that they acted for me, declares the Lord. So all of this evil that this king of Babylon has been doing is all according to what God wanted him to do. 
Now he's clearly volitionally doing what he wants to do. He's clearly warring against them because it's in his heart to do so and he wants to take over the whole world and he does. And yet he's acting based upon God's establishment of his army, God's blessing of his army, God allowing him to do all this destruction. That's hard to get your, your head around at many times. That God will use an evil king who's doing what he wants to do, and yet it is for God's purposes. And he's executing judgment according to what God wanted done. So that's, um, Daniel says the same thing, that God sets kings in their place, and, and then later in Daniel, he'll say that he turns their hearts. So... <laughs> God is sovereign. He'll do what he wants to do. And he's able to use evil men to do his will. Well, I, I love the book of Habakkuk, which is, he's a contemporary, but he's seen various prophecy into this. And that's his basis is, how can this be, Lord? Yeah. How, how can this be that you are the one? But you remember Ezekiel asked him the same question when he was in Jerusalem and he was seeing a vision of what was going to happen. And he's saying, Lord, are you going to kill them all? Are you just going to slaughter everybody? And he says, yeah, I am. Because the remnant is sitting in Babylon. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, God can do whatever he well pleases, and he does. And at this time, he had judgment for all these nations. And now he, he destroyed Israel or Judah because they were an abomination in his sight. But then he destroys all these other nations because they went against Israel. <laughs> You're like, really? <laughs> so, I mean, and ultimately, the Persians will come in and destroy Nebuchadnezzar because he destroyed Israel, which was God's will for him to do. And then it's the Persians, Cyrus, who sends Israel back to their homeland with all the provisions they needed to rebuild Jerusalem. So it's uh, God just orchestrating through history what he wanted to happen. Now, the, the next couple of chapters, chapter 30 is just a lament over Egypt because they are going to be wiped out. And so this, this is just a lament towards them. And then in chapter 31, he says... As Assyria fell, and Assyria fell to Nebuchadnezzar, so will Egypt fall in the same manner. So he's using a comparison between Assyria and Egypt. They're going to be exactly the same, which means they're going to be wiped out. And then in 31, 32, he again laments over Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, and over Egypt again. So you got three chapters here that focus on what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do to Egypt because other than Babylon, Egypt was the greatest power on the planet. And you remember, you probably, I don't know if you've ever studied this history, when Babylon comes in and sets up a puppet king in Jerusalem, and they do so for over 10 years, then that king goes to Egypt and asked Pharaoh to come and help him war against 
Babylon. Pharaoh says, we'll do that. And then when Babylon comes, he stays home. And he doesn't come and help them. And so now you've got a puppet king who's defiled the real king, Nebuchadnezzar, who is going to pay dearly for it. They take his, all his sons and they slaughter them before his eyes. And then they pluck his eyes out and put him in shackles and take him back to Babylon. So um, horrendous, horrendous, cruel treatment of people by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, um, you go on down into 33. And this is actually, it's interesting, it comes so late here. But this is a warning against Ezekiel. It's a call for a watchman. And if a watchman is on duty and doesn't warn the people, then he deserves what's coming against the people. And so it's a warning against Ezekiel. You know what's coming, so you need to tell these people what's about to happen. And so he does. He's a faithful watchman. And uh, he fears that God would take his life because if he wasn't faithful to be uh, the watchman. But at the end of that 20 verses, you get into verse 21 and 22. And this is the end. This is the end of really what God has been prophesying all the way up to this point. Because you notice in chapter 33... In verse 21, let me see, yeah, 21 and 22 of 33. Now in the twelfth year of our exile, on the fifth of the tenth month, the refugees from Jerusalem came to me saying, the city has been taken. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me in the evening before the refugees came, and he opened my mouth at the time they came to me in the morning. So my mouth was open, and I was no longer speechless. So he's been unable to talk in the first part of 33, but now he's able to prophesy because Jerusalem has been besieged. Now you remember the seed started... What, what did he say? It was in the 10th year. No, it was in the 9th year, right? Where is that at? It's in the 10th year. No, it's in the 9th year. I know it is. Help me find that again. Where Jerusalem... Oh, back in 24... The first two verses in the ninth year of the tenth month, and now here we are that Jerusalem's been taken, and it's in the twelfth year, the fifth month. Okay, so that's a little over three years, and we know from history that it did not take that long for Nebuchadnezzar to take over Jerusalem. Matter of fact, if you look at um, back in I think Nehemiah and chapter 39, and Nehemiah will give us the exact, exact time frame. The reason I'm going here, this is what some people would, pro, would point at and see, sorry, Jeremiah. Um, I think I wrote Nehemiah, but it's Jeremiah. I know it is. 
Jeremiah 39. This is what some people would point at and say, see, the scriptures are not consistent. But that's not so. Chapter 39 of Jeremiah. And verse, I think I said the very beginning. Yeah, 39 of Jeremiah. Now, in Jeremiah, remember, is a contemporary of Ezekiel, is a contemporary of Daniel. They all three are alive and prophesying at the same time. Jeremiah has more freedom than Ezekiel and Daniel. He's able, for some reason, Nebuchadnezzar said, you are free to continue to wander. And so he's, he's in Judah, he's in Babylon, he's in several different areas, and he's the one, I believe, who wrote Lamentations as he walks through the streets of Jerusalem and just says, here's how horrendous it really is in Jerusalem. Um, as he laments over what happened to Jerusalem. But anyway, in 39, the first two verses, now when Jerusalem was captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the 10th month, so that matches what he said. And notice he says it's captured. That does not mean that they have taken it. What it means is they surrounded it and they can't get away. That's what captured means. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his army came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. So they've started the siege of Jerusalem. Jerusalem can't get away, but they have not yet taken it. And then he says, in the 11th year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the, wall, the city wall was breached. So very specific here, we have when Jerusalem actually fell. And you notice it's from the ninth year till the eleventh year, it's 18 months that it actually took. Well, why over in Ezekiel then is it three years before Ezekiel knows about it? Because someone had to come from Jerusalem to Babylonia to tell Ezekiel. Matter of fact, he says the refugees. So who knows how long it took them, apparently at least 18 months. Could have been longer than that. They may have gotten away before the city was sieged. We don't know. But that's why Ezekiel doesn't say that's when the fall walls fell. What he says is this is when the word got to me. So it took a while. I mean, Babylon's a long way from Jerusalem. If you have an army and you're marching and you have provisions, it wouldn't take you very all that long. But if you're a refugee and you're scrounging and you don't know your way, it's gonna take you a while to get there. And so apparently it takes over a year for them to get to, um, to where Ezekiel is. So Jeremiah gives it to us very specifically, when it started, when it ended. And it took 18 months. And that's what the uh, Babylonian history would say, that is that it took 18 months. You know, we have a good bit of, um, they're not called scrolls, I can't remember what they're called, but documents from Babylon that you can put dates on things. And we know it took 18 months for them to siege Jerusalem. And that's what Jeremiah says. And Ezekiel does not contradict that 
even though there would be many who would point at it and see that that's a contradiction. Uh, they don't read what it actually says, right? It says the word came to him, not that the city fell. Right. Which is the same thing that Israel did, exactly. is they became proud, and that we're God's chosen people, so there's no way that He could ever do anything against us. Um, and this is Romans one, right? It's yeah. Like the generation of humanity, one after the other, falling into this same trap, and I think Paul alludes that that's going to be precisely what happens to the church at the end of the church. Okay? Yeah, and as we walk through thirty-four. There's some very specific things that he says, and we're going to, we won't get there today, I don't think, but we'll jump back to this passage that Andy's talking about in chapter 11 of Romans, and we'll jump to chapter 12 of Revelation, that what he's talking about in Ezekiel 34 changes the way that you think about those two passages. It'll reorient your thinking. And we will not do what the covenant do, which is take those passages and reinterpret um, what Ezekiel writes. What we'll do is we'll take those passages and see how God expands what he said in Romans and in Revelation. So we'll try to orient our... That's why this is so important to understand what's going on here, so that when you get to the blessing of Israel... You understand what the judgment has been and still is today and what God is ultimately going to do in the end and get perspective from what the Old Testament prophets wrote. Which is to use the church right. that he's grafted in to make Israel jealous of their lost relationship with the Father. Right. And, and we'll, we'll see specifically 
how God will say that he'll bring all of Israel together and then kick some of them out of his kingdom. And we'll see, I mean, it'll be in black and white. You won't be able to miss it. That everybody whom God brings together and hides and protects during the tribulation do not make it into the kingdom of God, even if they are Jews. So we'll see that as, as this all plays out. That's why I wanted to get here and then slow down so that your perspective, you'll see what God has done and how he's wrought his will through an evil king and, and his armies and then get perspective that what Ezekiel begins to write has not yet taken place. And we'll see that. You'll, you'll see it as we get into it. I just... You, you have to be meticulous to get to that point or you'll miss the change. But it anchors us down in understanding oh. why we're living in the you know, we are and where they're headed and who's actually in control and the purpose and the end that he's moving them forward. And this judgment against Israel is still ongoing today. It's not like it ended. It was ongoing in the time of Jesus Christ which is why they crucified him, and it's been ongoing all the way till today. It's not that this is ended. It still goes on. They're blind. They can't see the truth. They couldn't see it when Christ came. They can't see it now when Ezekiel writes. They never saw it. Now, there's always a few faithful. There's always, a, I mean, Daniel's faithful. Ezekiel's faithful. Jeremiah's faithful. There's, there, uh, so is Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. All these guys who came after them are very faithful, but they're a small minority of the total population of, of Israel. So gain perspective. Understand what Ezekiel is writing so that we can then understand what comes in the New Testament. As they write with the same perspective, because all the scriptures they had to study were what we're looking at. This is what Jesus Christ was able to quote and does. So that's why we're going through this like we are. In, thir in, in 33, 23 through 29, God says why he allowed Jerusalem to be judged. So it's instructive for us. 23 through 29, this is when the word of the capture of Jerusalem comes to Ezekiel. And then God puts a word in his mouth, and he speaks it to, his, to Israel. 33, 23. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, they who live in their waste places in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, yet he possessed the land. So to us who are many, the land has been given as a possession. That's not Israel. That's, that's Edom moving into the land of Israel. So it's, I mean, you can look at, if you, if you read the history of the Edomites, they take a good bit of the land of Israel while as Israel is gone. If you look at the map, they border one another, Edom and Israel. And so they move westward into Israel. That's what's going on here. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord, you eat meat with the blood in it, you lift up your eyes to idols as you shed blood, should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword, you commit abominations in each 
one of you defiles his neighbor's wife, should you then possess the land? Thus you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely those who are in the waste places will fall by the sword, and whoever is in the open field I will give to the beast to be devoured, and those who are in the strongholds and in the caves will die of pestilence. I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and the pride of her power will cease, and the mountains of Israel will be desolate, so that no one will pass through. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I make the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abomination which they have committed. But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. They come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them, for they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So when it comes to pass, as surely it will, they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. This is why God destroys Jerusalem. They hear the words, they understand them, they ignore them, and they're disobedient. And God says, enough, I'll make the land a desolation. Now get this, this is the promised land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here, it is now desolate. There's not an Israelite in sight. They're all in Babylon. There's no one in the land because God does not allow them to go there. They try to, but then God kills them with pestilence, with the beasts, with the sword. He wipes out the whole, and the land is left desolate. Jerusalem walls have been torn down. The temple has been torn down. All the houses have been burned in the city. You can read Lamentations, and, and uh, Jeremiah describes it in detail of what it looks like. And so this is the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that Joshua went in and took much of, but not all of it, that is now totally desolate, totally wiped out. No hope for Israel at all in sight here. They're all in Babylon captive. There's nobody in Jerusalem. There's nobody in any of the cities of Judah. And so that's the picture in 600 BC of what Israel looks like. Christ will come 600 years later. Yeah. We're privileged and we're going to do exactly what we want to do. And God says, no, you won't. Yeah, and God says, no, you won't. No, you won't. I'll wipe you out. And he did. 
I mean, we've come to the end now. I mean, Israel's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. And they'll be in captivity for another 50 years before, um, 70 years actually, but um, and then they have to go back and try and rebuild. And they never, never attain what they were. Now, so we go from 33 into 34. And the whole tenor of the book changes in 34. And you, you, you begin to see it at the beginning of 34. But the deeper you read in Ezekiel, you'll go, oh, he's talking about something else. He's not talking about this current, present, soon-to-be judgment that Ezekiel was talking about. I mean, Ezekiel lived to see his prophecies come true. They, they, were, they were contemporary. They weren't distant future. But now, as he gets to 34, he's talking about something that he never sees and no one has ever seen since. And, and we'll see that as we go through the details of what he said. 34, 35, and 36 are, well, 34 and 36 especially, are amazing chapters. 36 is absolutely overwhelming. When you get to 36 and you see for Israel, New Testament rebirth, new creation spoken of in Ezekiel 36. You'll see it in living color. And you're just like, it's just an amazing passage. And we'll get there, but we're going to go through 34 first. Because in 34, he details when the millennial kingdom first begins, what does God do in the land of Israel? What happens to the Israelites at the beginning of the millennial kingdom? So, do we have time? Not really, but we'll, we'll just start this, okay? When the millennial kingdom happened, all right, <laughs> try and set the picture, right? of what I believe. You have the tribulation time, which is seven years. There are natural cataclysmic things that happen in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. I mean, they're supernatural, but um, you have pestilence, you have earthquakes, you have wars, you have all these things that go on in those first three and a half years, and it kills half the population on the planet. Israel during that time makes a pact of peace with the one who will be revealed to be the Antichrist. At the midpoint of the tribulation, he shows who he really is. And Israel flees into the desert. And you say, well, surely he could find them into a place provided by God to hide them. So God intends to hide them for three and a half years, and the scripture says, and to nourish them. So he's going to hide them and nourish them for three and a half years, and he does. And so at the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes and he wipes out all the armies of the, all the nations gathered against him and Israel, then Israel is revealed again. 
and they're in their own land. And God has to deal with them. Jesus Christ deals with them. And some of them are unbelievers. Some of them are believers. And so you have to see the judgment of God in the nation of Israel even after the tribulation as the millennial kingdom begins. That's chapter 34 of Ezekiel. And so we'll begin to look at this. And he starts where God always starts. So read the first few verses of 34 with me. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the leaders. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The disease you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up, and the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or to seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become afraid, a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not see, search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. This is a judgment against the leaders of Israel. And it's very clear, right? That they are not part of the flock. When God says to you, I will rescue my flock from you so that you can't devour them, means you're not part of the flock. Those that I'm rescuing from you are. So the leaders of Israel at this time, whatever it is, and we'll be able to put a timeline on it a little later in the chapter. At this time, whenever it is, God is going to judge all the leaders of Israel who have not been faithful and rescue the flock of God from them, meaning they're not part of the flock, even though they're Israelites and they're in positions of leadership. God is going to rescue. If God says to you, I am against you, that's not good. You're not part of his camp. You're not part of the flock. He's going to judge you for not being part of the flock. And so that's the position 
the very first thing we see as we get to chapter 34, and again, later in the chapter, we'll be able to see when is this that God judges these leaders and, they, and really calls them out. Even though they're part of Israel, they're moved to the side. Make sense? You see it clearly here. There's no doubt that that's what he's doing, that he's taking those unfaithful leaders and removing them and separating them from his flock. All right, there are more yet to be separated. It's not just the leaders. There's another group of Israelites that God will gather together and move them out from amongst the flock. And we'll see that next time as we go further in 34. You can read it for yourselves. You, you know what it says. Maybe you already have. And then read all the way through 36. Yeah. Six, seven, eight, where you have this intense, really, confrontation between Christ and the leaders of the Jewish right. nations at that time. And then nine with Lazarus, but then 11 and 12. And then you get in the upper room, and the Lord talks about this, really, this new covenant that's unfolding that will culminate in the redemption of that very special people. all under the new covenant that Christ establishes in fulfillment of the old covenant. And the means by which he's always saved is the new covenant, right? Well, you know, that's what's amazing about Ezekiel 36. You'll see that God's method of salvation for the Israelites is exactly the same as it has been, it is for the church. No, no, no difference. And that's why 36 is an amazing chapter all the way through here I'll, I'll just tell you at the beginning of 34 it changes to the millennial kingdom and you'll see you, you can't see that here in these opening verses but the further you get into it the more convinced you become this has never happened this has not yet happened even though Christ speaks against those leaders even though in 70 AD Jerusalem was judged again by the uh, Really, I don't think by the Romans, but nevertheless, they were in charge. But it was judged by other peoples. And one day, I'll talk to you about that when we get over into Daniel chapter 9. Um, we'll talk about that in detail, that it wasn't the Romans who destroyed Jerusalem. It was other people, um, mainly Syrians. And um, so we'll talk about all that in the future. But right now, focus on what God says about Israel in the millennial kingdom because that's what Ezekiel is going to prophesy about. Thanks for your time.